Good morning and welcome. I'm glad you're here safe and sound. I trust that you had as much fun driving here as I did earlier this morning. <laughs> Love those four-wheel slides. It's just, just drifting. Yeah, anyway. But uh, would you turn with me in your Bible to uh, Genesis chapter 11? I want to begin by reading the first uh, nine verses of that chapter. Today we're going to talk about the third in this trilogy of messages. We did one world government, one world economy last week, and this week we're looking at one world religion, something that seems of all the three the most unlikely to ever come to pass. As I was explaining to some of the guys before service, when I was growing up, my parents said in a social setting there are two things you should never talk about. One was politics and the other one was religion. Now, I haven't paid attention to either one of those instructions, but the point is that we know that these are such contentious issues generally that people, if they want to get along, kind of avoid them. And yet, the Bible really very clearly tells us that there will be a unification that will come in the end times around a consensus of religious theology as part of the bigger plan to bring one government and one economy. So that's what we're going to look at today. On Wednesday night, if you've been following with us, we've gone through the first week we talked about the events that will precede the Great Tribulation. Last week we talked about the events of the Tribulation, and that was so easy. Nobody had any trouble following it, except I remember John Strauss said, I just felt like I drank out of a fire hose. But, um, and next week we're going to talk about the post tribulation things that are going to take place. I mean, lots of questions about what is the millennium, what takes place during that time, what is the great white throne judgment, and uh, what happens to the dead in Christ, and so forth. So we'll be doing that on Wednesday evening. So anyway, we'll get to that. Look forward to seeing you then at that time. But would you stand with me as we begin by reading these first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. The text begins as follows. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. And they stopped building the city. And that is why it is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we begin looking at this passage and the things that it implies that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. You'd lead us in our understanding just as I found in studying and preparing for this message that so many things just kind of unfolded before my eyes. I pray, Lord, that there would be that same unfolding and awareness that comes as a consequence to everyone who's here today, that you, Lord, might be glorified, that we might be more surrendered to your purpose and your plan for our lives. We pray for that grace, Lord, that help. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
Something we'll get into uh, in February when we begin going through the book of Genesis is that what archaeologists and scientists, even geneticists, have discovered that all humanity had an original set of parents. It kind of goes contrary to the idea of evolutionary theory that things just kind of metastasized, nothing created something. But we do know that by, based upon the DNA that everybody had an original mother. They call her Eve, in fact, in the genetic community. They had this original mother from whom we are all descended. But also we know that mankind started with an original language as well. Uh, linguists have discovered, etymologists have discovered that in the beginning, as far back, people were not only uh, unified biologically and genetically, but they also had one language. So when we read this story from our modern perspective, it's easy for us to say, well, this kind of reads like simple mythological literature. But actually, it speaks and describes a world that is very true to what we know scientifically to be the facts today. And one of the things that history shows is that mankind instinctively is religious. I mean, archaeologists say that the earliest evidence of the earliest cultures, particularly the earliest civilization we know, the Sumerians and the Egyptians, basically formulated or organized their cultures not upon rulers, not around armies or governments or laws, or even economics, they organized around religion. That the first buildings to be built were temples, places of worship, and the first leaders were usually not only the heads of the home, but they were the priests of the families as well. And so the idea of being the leader and the priest and the head of the home, home, home was really where all governmental systems found their origin. So when we read about Babel and its founding, the first step that we find these people doing in their organizational attempts is to build, as it says, a tower that reaches to heaven. Or most li more literally, it's referring to a temple-like building. The term literally used today, or used then, was a ziggurat. And it was a step pyramid with the idea that you would ascend up to God. You would reach up into the heavens, and there, the higher you went physically into the atmosphere, the closer you got to God. And somehow, as the priest ascended those steps, he somehow became the conduit from which all divine revelation and truth would flow, and he would descend to the masses and dispense the information that supposedly he had gained. This is essentially the difference, when we talk about religion, between what is religion and what is the gospel as represented in Christianity. This is a critical distinction if we're going to know what it means to be a Christian or not to be a Christian, and not simply what it means to be a religious person. Those terms get blurred and they get confused, because what religion is is man's attempt to reach heaven. It's man's attempt to reach God so that the blessing and the saving grace of God can come to him, but he does it by his own efforts. The more bricks he lays, the higher he gets. Where many of us understand our spiritual life a lot like Zacchaeus who wants to climb up into the highest tree so he can see God. And I would ask people many times, what trees are you climbing to raise up your stature in life, both physically and even spiritually? But what we find in the gospel is not God saying, reach up to where I am, but rather God becoming man. God reaching down to us and through the effort of Christ, not through our effort and his effort alone, he both saves us and he brings blessing and graces into our life. 
And that's why if you want to talk about what's unique about Christianity from every other religious system or philosophy that's out there, it can be summarized in one simple word. It's grace. If you studied religions, you, you, one of the things you come to understand, as I have done, that no other religion has a basis of grace. It's all about what you do in order to merit the gr- goodness of blessing of God and hopefully the saving grace or the salvation of God. But the gospel says you are incapable of saving yourself. It is a gift of God that comes to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. And as we believe on that, we are saved. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's just given to us as a gift freely by his grace. So saying that, it's not surprising that in the book of Revelation, when we read about the beast, who we often refer to as the Antichrist as well, that staying true to the satanic formula, that he would set out to build a tower to heaven as well. In fact, as we talked about last week in Revelation, we find that the tower he wants to build is a temple in Jerusalem, the third temple that has been destroyed twice before, first by the Babylonians in, in 589 B.C. and again by the, by the Romans in 70 B.C., or 70 AD, and this, this temple prophecy tells us is going to be rebuilt, built, and it's going to be rebuilt in conjunction with the Jews in Jerusalem. That the Antichrist, we're told by Daniel in chapter 7, enters in, or chapter 9, excuse me, enters into a covenant with the Jews for one week, seven years. But in the midst of that, after the temple is rebuilt, he breaks the covenant and puts his image in the temple and commands the world to worship him as God. He betrays them, essentially, as Paul told us in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. He says, he will exalt himself over everything that is called God or worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, there's a, one word that often gets overlooked in that statement. He basically exalts himself over everything that is called God. In other words, he basically says all other religions are now moot. This is the only religion that has validity, the religion that sets me as the object of worship for mankind. Of course, he's not alone in this effort, we're told in Revelation. For example, in chapter 13 and again in chapter 19, the prophet tells us the dragon gave the beast, the dragon being Satan, gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. And then he talks about the false prophet who has given power to cause all who refuse to worship the image to be killed, to perform miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. So this is why when Jesus was speaking to his disciples about the end of time, and they asked him about the signs, Jesus warned them that during that tribulation period, he said, false Christ's, False prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. False Christs and false prophets. Now, here's where sometimes understanding language carefully is helpful. The fact that they are false doesn't necessarily mean that they're inherently unattractive or even necessarily overtly evil. In fact, Paul tells us that Satan will masquerade as an angel of light. He doesn't show up in red tights, horns, and a pitchfork. 
If he did, it would be easier to see him in those kind of ways. But even the name Lucifer means angel of light. He comes as something very glorious and, and wondrous, not as something that's ugly and unattractive. And that's why we talk about sin as being something that we are tempted into. Believe me, there are some things that are not a temptation for me because they are overtly unattractive. There are other things that are alluring because they're winsome and they're attractive. So that you have to understand that these false teachers, these false prophets, aren't going to come on the scene and telling you ugly, hurtful, unhappy things. They're rather going to give you permission to do the things that you may otherwise want to do. It's kind of a libertine type of approach to religious life. You can have it your way. You can do it the way that you want. But the initial attraction of this new religious system, Paul tells us, is basically, well, the way he phrases it is peace and safety. Paul would put it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, that the message will be peace and safety. Um, the word peace there literally means the end of war, the end of conflict. There will be harmony and unity and peace on earth and goodwill towards men. This will be the new utopian era. The word safety means there will be certainty, there will be stability, physical and economic security. These two things have powerful attractions to most people because we live in a broken, wounded and violent world that's troubled with all sorts of ugly things. And the idea that one person can come on the scene and by almost a wave of a wand or divine caveat or just simply political muscle can make all of that ugliness go away and bring peace on earth. Well, that's how Hitler became the head of the German nations. I mean, we don't like to think about it yet. One of my sons gave me for my birthday uh, a compilation of all of Hitler's speeches with the uh, video and the text underneath it. And to me, I always look, watch Hitler giving a message and thought, what a, what a weirdo. Who could ever get caught up in that guy? But as I watched it, reading the text underneath all of his speeches, it suddenly struck me. There was a compelling attractiveness to a depression-weary country that had been beaten into poverty through war, had seen death and destruction of their economy and their families, and were living in poverty and struggling to survive and felt shame and reproach by the rest of the world to suddenly have someone come along and saying, you're not going to be the tail, you're now going to be the head. There's an attraction to that, and, and we're drawn to that. And so, but what's interesting is, rather than delivering the utopian ideal as promised, Paul went on to say, but instead, destruction will come on them, and it will come suddenly. And even the word destruction that's used there in, in the lexicon means ruin, destruction, and death. And that's exactly what the Bible describes in the book of Revelation, especially in the last three and a half years. Destruction, ruin, and death. We might throw in disease uh, along with that. But that's what he says is this is going to be the attractant. We're going to bring world peace. We're going to usher in, as we've heard over and over again, this new world order that's going to solve all of the problems. And we are now going to have the opportunity to live happily ever after. Genesis 11 reveals that this is not a new idea. 
I mean, we can look at Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar, that great king of the Babylonians, had in mind the very same thing when he commanded. It's interesting. He has a vision of this statue and its composites of different metals going from the head of gold down to the feet of clay and iron. And the interpretation Daniel gives that these are the kingdoms that are going to follow you. And we can go historically right down the list and identify every one of them by all of the markers that Daniel is given so carefully by the Lord. But what's ironic is the next chapter, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He builds a statue, a replica of what he saw in dream, but it doesn't have a head of gold, which was symbolic of his kingdom, but the whole thing from head to toe is solid gold. And he says, if you don't worship this image, you will die. It was his statement, I'm going to set up the eternal kingdom and nobody is going to survive if they don't cooperate. And that's not dissimilar to what the Antichrist does in the end of time. But what has always seemed uh, an interesting theological concept, in practical terms, has appeared to be unfeasible. I mean, how in the world can you get the disparate communities of the world to come together in agreement around any single religious concept? That even within organizations or religious movements that claim to have a central feature or focus, they are divided and splintered in so many parts and pieces. Even in the most basic sense, Islam is divided between the Sunni and the Shia, so much so that they are committed to killing each other. And then you have dozens of subgroups like the Druze and, and the whirling dervishes and the Kurds, and you have all these different groups within Islam who literally are dedicated to destroying each other as heretics. And if you look at Judaism, you can look at the Reform, the Orthodox, the Ultra-Orthodox, the Hasidic, and so forth and so on. These various groups who consider each other not really truly Jewish because they aren't doing what they're doing. Fortunately, in Christianity, we don't have those kind of divisions. <laughs> Even within the Roman Church, you have five major movements within Roman Catholicism and 24 different groupings underneath those five different movements. There is no place on the earth that you have a religious movement where people are really unified in the complete sense. So when we think about one world government, we're saying, how in the world can something like that ever happen? It certainly never has happened before. And it's never been considered to be feasible universally, much less even locally, until recent times. It's amazing within the last few decades that proponents for such an idea have come from every quarter. In fact, uh, Brock Chisholm, who was the first UN delegate, UN World Health Organization, uh, chairman of the UN Health Organization, when it first formed, made this statement. He said, to achieve world government, it is necessary to remove from the minds of men their individualism, Loyalty to family, traditions, national patriotism, and religious dogmas. In other words, he very clearly, one of these founding leaders of the United Nations says, if this thing is going to be work, if we're going to ever get to our goal, and keep in mind, as we pointed out, the stated goal of the UN is not to bring nations together so they can have a great kumbaya moment. The stated purpose is to create a unified world government. Uh, I was even shocked when I began reading their documents and going back through it and realizing 
They've stated from the very beginning, they are going to create one world governing body that has authority and sovereignty over all other nation states. And when the Iron Curtain collapsed, many of those leaders began to go for it with great gusto. In fact, Robert Mueller, who was the director of the FBI under George Bush, said, we must move as quickly as possible to a one-world government, a one-world religion, under a one-world leader. <laughs> so much so that Democratic Congressman uh, Peter Hoagland added, Bible-believing people do not have the right to indoctrinate their children in their religious beliefs because we, the state, are preparing them for the year 2000 when America will be part of a one-world global society and their children will not fit in. Oh my, oh my. <laughs> now, these are not simply isolated ideas. In fact, I tell you that time and space has put a limit on how many such statements coming from leaders around the world, but particularly within our own nation, who have been promoting this. It's important to understand that every president of the United States since Ronald Reagan have been a globalist who has promoted the idea of new, one new world order based upon the universal government of the United Nations. Granted, our outgoing president, the one who just left, um, went further than anybody before him. I mean, the transfer of our governing powers to the United Nations to the point where even the Attorney General goes to the UN to explain to them her plan for policing U.S. states without ever even bothering to visit the Congress and tell them about it. So that increasingly, towards, especially in the last years, there was this obvious bypassing of the United States Congress and going directly to the UN, operating it as if it is now the key governing authority of the world, including the United States. But what's really interesting is in the midst of all of this, there has been rather less notably the work of developing a UN religious system. The UN has basically taken in, under its wing a number of religious organizations whose stated goal is to work to create a unity between the, U, U, the world religions of the world and bring them into one. Groups like the World Council of Churches or the World Council of Religious Leaders or the religious, United Religious Initiatives, all of them working under the auspices of the United Nations. In fact, if you just go to the website of the World Council of Religious Leaders, it says that their purpose is to bring religious resources to support the work of the United Nation in our common quest for peace. And that becomes the byword, peace. We want to bring peace. We want to bring an end to conflict. And we want to use the religions to be the thing that will heal us and no longer divide us. The mission is we are here to promote peace. And it's said over and over and over again. You know why? Because nobody objects to peace. Nobody's going to object to bizarre theological differences. Because we want peace. In fact, the United Religious Initiative, which was founded in, in a, in a UN-sponsored interfaith conference... Uh, the head of the California Episcopalian Church was the keynote speaker, and he made the following statements. He said, We stand on the threshold of a new world order. 
that calls the human race to work across national, ethnic, and religious boundaries to serve as a larger global good. He went on to apologize to the attendees at this conference for what he called two millennia, 2,000 years of Christian evangelism, including, and he said regretfully, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and Savior of all and seeking to make the whole world Christian. He apologized for that. Someday, he said, a united religions will need to be created in order to save religions from these fundamentalists. It's interesting because the, the most recent uh, UN uh, Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, uh, basically said that the religious leaders stand up for inclusivity and against extremism. And that's where we find in this word where, world where words are used in less than transparent ways. That they begin to develop these certain code messages so that we want to be inclusive, we don't want to be extremists. In fact, one Episcopal bishop who, uh, until his sudden and unexpected death in a motorcycle accident, uh, speaking at a conference of all people for Ken Copeland of, of charismatic pastors, actually was say, made this interesting statement. He says, diversity is divine, division is diabolical. Now, that's a rather clever saying. It, it kind of flows off the tongue. Easy to remember, but what does it actually mean? And he goes on to explain that we need to be recognizing that there's wide diversity amongst peoples, amongst religious groups, amongst Christians, but to be divided is of the devil. And then he begins to cite examples of it. Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And he goes on to list, you know, there's, he says there's 53,000 different Christian denominations. Actually, there's only 33,000. But... Um, and I'm listening to this as a group of Protestant pastors are cheering and applauding, and then Ken Copeland stands up before the group and says, I never believed in my life I would see this day when Jesus' command to us that we all might be one as he and the Father are one. And it's easy for you, if you don't have the background, to understand why the Protestant Reformation took place. Because Christianity had become doctrinally and practically and morally so corrupt that God called out a, a Reformation movement and it led to the death of literally millions of Christians at the hands of their Catholic brethren. Somehow as I listen to these conversations of saying, well, we just need to come together, you have to realize, it's like the old saying, don't take a fence down until you realize why it was put up. I mean, seriously, let's go back and learn why this happened in the first place before we begin to make those kind of movements. But what the United Religion Initiative and the UN Institute led up to in 2000, what was called the UN's Millennial World Peace Summit, 
You know, I guess after they found out that the computer still worked, they decided to have a summit. And it's in this, and basically, as one article described it, it's more than 1,000 religious and spiritual leaders from diverse faiths and traditions from all regions of the world met at the United Nations to do what? To pledge to work for world peace. So you had Hindus, Buddhists, Shintoists, you had witchcraft, uh, voodoo, uh, I mean, everything and anything that could be represented was brought together in one consortium, and they were all there to encourage each other to one great agenda, that they would work together, overlooking their subtle differences, and not engaging in any kind of effort to convert or to evangelize, because we know that living on earth is more important than eternity. And we're going to work this out so that we can come to this moment where we have world peace. As the UN Commission uh, on Global Governments issued its report in what they called our global neighborhood, not only did they, in their report, call for a strengthened UN that would be able to literally govern the world, but also a set of common core values around which we can unite. We can unite people irrespective of their culture, their political, religious, and philosophical backgrounds. Now, coming out of the UN, I'm not terribly surprised, but coming out of the mouth of the President of the United States, George Herbert Bush, I was, as he simply said, it is the sacred principles enshrined in the United Nations. So the principles of the United Nations now have become sacred and enshrined. That's religious terminology. He says, to which the American people will henceforth pledge their allegiance. Do you understand that? Do you understand why the idea is let's get the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States of America out of schools? Because what we need to do is move towards a Pledge of Allegiance to the United Nations Charter and its enshrined sacred principles, which is one world government, one world economy, one world religion. If you don't get that, maybe you can understand why Donald Trump is giving these guys a heartburn. <laughs> In all seriousness, friends, I'm telling you, what we're seeing is a clash of cultures. A globalist culture is suddenly being found itself usurped by an American first or a nationalist populist culture. And there is a, almost a hot war going on. And, you know, if you don't understand it, it's so helpful because I think that uh, uh, when Madonna expressed clearly in her speech yesterday their position uh, between various F-bombs when she said, I felt like going to Washington and burning the White House down. You just understand that there is a huge chasm that's come to pass over the last eight years as the country has moved increasingly towards not just a globalist idea, but the idea of one world government. And now we're seeing the backlash from people who feel like that utopian dream has been taken from them. And I don't think it's going to get easier. Now, who is in favor of this? Well, 
You know, as I cited in the previous message, the goal of one world government has been promoted by a very wide and influential and powerful cross-section of world leaders. Not just government leaders, but also a lot of economic leaders who, because one of the things we know, as I shared last week, that what global economic development has done has, has really enriched the 1%. I mean, they have, they have really, really enriched themselves, and it has literally decimated the middle class. So there are people who have a lot at stake. They've got a lot of uh, coin in the game, a lot of skin in the game. And as I mentioned, every single president since Ronald Reagan has been a proponent of globalism, except for the new guy that just moved in the other day. But it's ironic to me that also each of the last four popes have been strong proponents of one world government. And I, I, it surprises me because, you know, they've come under a lot of criticism. They've been vilified by those same people who are promoting the one world government. And so it's been an interesting uh, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. And I'm kind of convinced that every religious movement that gets on board kind of envisions themselves being the top dog in the pantheon of, of uh, religions. And maybe that's at what play, because the Roman Catholic Church has 1.2 million, or billion, excuse me, adherents in the world. It's the largest religious organization in the world. And, the, and, and so in a sense, if there's going to be leadership there, it would make a lot of sense. And I'm not implying that these guys are bad guys who have demonic uh, agendas. Any more than when I would see you lie, cheat, and steal, that I think that you're suddenly demon-possessed, but you've just taken some counsel from the wrong places. That we look at people who live lives that are uh, outside of the gospel of Christ, we realize that they are advised and they are conditioned to think and to act and to behave in a certain way. And if you grow up within a religious tradition that basically says there should be only one church on the planet and all other churches are invalid, why not just simply extend that to all religious movements around the world? So that when you begin to follow the comments, it's, it's striking. Uh, Pope Benedict, who retired, which I was kind of surprised, I didn't think popes could retire. Uh, they, I thought they had to die in office, but... Anyway, I don't know how that works. If you're the vicar of Christ and you're still alive and then you've got another vicar of Christ, do you have two vicars of Christ? <laughs> well, that's actually not a problem. There's been times when the Roman Catholic Church has three vicars at the same time who are all trying to kill each other. But it's not my history. It's their history. I'm not making that up. But Pope Benedict, when he was still Pope, uh, said a unified world government, a new world order, in no uncertain terms, is the ultimate goal of the Roman Catholic Church. So here's the supreme authority of the Roman Church saying this is the goal. But none has been more aggressive in this effort than the current Pope, Francis. The Green Pope, who, who shared with us that if we don't support global warming, we're in sin. Mortal sin, which means it's the serious kind. But according to uh, the blog site, Catholic blog site called the, the uh, Covenant of Faith, uh, Cardinal Bergoglio, which is the name of the Pope before he became Francis, uh, was actually one of the active members of the United Religious Initiative, which works within the UN to promote one world religion. And we begin to see a clear pattern of behavior. And for example, in October of 2014, 
uh, Pope Francis publicly embraced the theory of evolution. It's interesting. <laughs> anyway, he said, <laughs> when we read about the creation in Genesis, we run the risk of imagining God as a magician with a magic wand able to do everything, but that is not so. What? God is being a magician who can do everything, but he can't? Again, people have told me the Catholic Bible is different. I had no idea how different it was. I mean, that's, that's just, that's, that's blasphemy. Saying God is limited. And he can't do whatever he wants to do. On Wednesday nights, next month, we'll start going through the book of Genesis and uh, I, I'll point out to you that actually the Bible does say that he did all of it in an instant and he is all-powerful and he can do everything he wants. Uh, one for God, none for Pope. Uh, <laughs> on June 15th, On June 15th, 2015, Pope Francis called for a new global political authority that would have the resources necessary to deal with the world's economic problems and injustices. It's a, another subtle way of saying the call has been for the UN to take over the world economic markets, the currency, and all of the rest. Uh, that's why it's so insignificant that, that uh, President Obama surrendered the internet, which is basically the source of all information and business in the world increasingly, to the United Nations for them to become the overseers of it. I'm so excited that 193 different nations, most of them which were reigned by tyrants and despots and criminals, are now going to be the ones who are going to decide. And you know who's the pre who pushed for this more than anybody else was China and Russia. Hmm. Interesting. But it also is the call for a real military force and police force that can enforce UN law and directives worldwide. In September of 2015, uh, Pope Francis described the United, States, the United Nations as providing a new universal agenda for humanity. In, in November of the same year, Pope Francis declared that fundamentalism, even Christian fundamentalism, is a sickness during remarks which he stressed the similarity of the major religions of the world. Now, for those of you who are saying, you're making this up, I got a video clip, and it's in foreign, it's in different languages, but hopefully you can read the subtitles, and you can see I'm not making this up. It comes, you might say, right out of the Pope's own mouth. Now, you may agree with that, <laughs> but it's amazing. One of the most amazing things happened in this last year to me was when Shimon Perez, who has passed away this last year. He was the most respected uh, political leader in Israel in our generation, our lifetime. Um, set up a special meeting with Pope Francis and he told him, it was disclosed after the meeting, that he said to the Pope, what we need is an organization of united religions as the best way to combat terrorists who kill in the name of faith. What we need is an unquestionable moral authority who says out loud, no, God does not want this and does not allow it. 
What struck me was that we already have that absolute moral authority. His name is Jesus. His word has made it very clear what he wants and what he does want. And uh, it's naive, I think, on the part of Perez to think that any man would be able to do that. But we have to understand that this is not simply the formulations of dialogical people. I am not a, a, a conspiratorialist because I don't think people are smart enough to develop, develop conspiracies. You know, I mean, <laughs> I try to hide things from my wife and she finds whatever. I mean, you, you know, of course, if I didn't ask her what she wanted for Christmas first, it might be easier to hide it from her. But, you know, the whole point is that we, we're not really good at that. We always fall down upon our own ways. But the devil is extremely good at hiding things and disclosing them. And most importantly, the word that Jesus used was deception and delusion. That men will be deceived and they will be deluded. That well-intentioned dragons, if you will, which I say that it's amazing to me that a couple of times I've been to the Vatican, the most prominent icon that you see plastered on doorways and all around the, the Vatican is the red dragon. How they chose that symbol, I'm not quite sure. I don't know if it's related. But scripture tells us three things must happen for the false religion to rise to power. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he said the restraining power or force has to be removed. The thing that's hindering it has to be removed. My own personal belief is he's referring to the rapture of the church. The church has to be out of the way because we're called to be salt and light in the world. And I think as such, I think the church is a restraining force in the world. We aren't the best sometimes, but many times we are. But I believe that God is going to take his church out of the way, not just simply to save us from what's coming, but to allow evil to begin to move forward unfettered. That secondly, Paul said that there will come a great apostasy in that same chapter. Literally, the word apostasia means a departure from, and which I believe we are seeing happening all around us today. That uh, it's ironic, as one writer put it recently, that in an effort to become more like Jesus, we have rejected the truth. And yet we ask questions, what would Jesus do? And then we begin to say he would certainly overlook divorce, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, uh, and the list of things that the Bible very clearly says you shouldn't do these things. This is not how God operates. And people who do these things will never see the kingdom of God but somehow it's becoming more like Jesus by overlooking the fact that Jesus said, thou shalt not. It's a very confused theological generation that we live in. That simultaneously we say we love Jesus and then we live without regard to anything that he says. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not the opposite. And I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing the forerunner of it. I mean, seeing it at all sorts of levels, not only through these huge political organizations, religious political organizations, but we see it in, in just the streets and the byways within our own community, even within the evangelical church today. As I was watching in the interview of one pastor of a, a large megachurch in New York City who was being questioned by CNN about the fact that they had a homosexual pastor on their staff. And this is an evangelical charismatic church. And his response was, I don't read any place in the Bible where Jesus says anything about homosexuality. And he said, gays and lesbians are welcome in our church and it's not an issue for us. And I, 
I was sad. I would never have imagined. I mean, I have listened to this man's messages. I've heard him preach. Uh, it's got some, he's a really effective communicator. I like some of the things he said. But I was just left, my jaw hit the floor. Are you serious? Are you serious? One of the things that Steve Turner said I think is really interesting uh, because the third thing we find is that there's going to come this rise of this universal religion, and I think we're seeing that. This coming together of, around the idea that peace and security, security being, we hear a lot about um, justice on the earth, which means a redistribution of the resources so that everybody has a fair chance to get ahead. That we Americans and we in the Western world, we've been favored and we've abused our position as the wealthiest countries. We consume more of the resources. And so as a consequence, we need to begin to create an equability. One of the things that is often overlooked by people who talk about social justice around the world is that all the studies and research that have been done on poverty in the third world have come back to find the real issue is not resources. The real issue is the criminality of the government's that steal from their own people and keep them in poverty. And I've seen that firsthand for myself in the third world. But this, the problem with this idea that we come together, I love what Steve Turner in his famous uh, poem, Creed, made one, one part of it. He said this about uh, where we're at today. He says, we believe that all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation Sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. <laughs> Otherwise, they are exactly like... I jumped the order of those slides, by the way. Did you notice that? I just, just freaking out. If you want, you can pull that one up and then go back. I'm sure it's easy to do. I make, I make my, our tech people's lives so easy. <laughs> I give them an outline. I give them my notes. I just don't happen to use them. But again, we believe that all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. The only different matters are creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation, which is essentially everything. So what will this one world religion look like? Um, it's interesting because Revelation chapter 17 goes into quite a bit of detail, and it's a little confusing detail in many ways, but it lists basically six things that will be stand out about this one world religion. The first clue that it gives us, it says that it's going to be a city. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So here it is. It's, it's going to be centralized in a single city. It says, secondly, that that city sits on seven hills. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Thirdly, it provides, presides over a vast international system. It says the prostitute, as it refers to her because of her spiritual adultery, uh, sits on peoples, multitudes, nations, and language. So it covers the entirety of the earth. It has its tentacles in every place on the planet. That fourthly, she is clothed quite distinctly. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was with glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls, and she held a golden cup in her hand. Clue number five, that she corrupts biblical truth. That's why she's called the great prostitute. But it says, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. And the inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. In spiritual sense, we find that prostitution, adultery, and fornication are always depicted as corrupting of biblical doctrine to give permission to do things that God says thou shalt not. But sixth, she persecutes the true believers. The woman, it says, was drunk with the blood of the saints, 
the blood of those who bore the testimony to Jesus. Now, maybe purely coincidental, but the Vatican in Rome is a city-state. I don't know if many of you realize that the Vatican has walls around it. That's why it's interesting to me because the Pope came out and said there should be no borders, and yet have you ever been to the Vatican? There's a 50-foot wall surrounding that thing, and try to get in without permission, let me tell you. It provides, it's, it is a city that sits on seven hills that presides over 1.2 billion devotees whose leadership are identified by the colors of red and by purple, whose costumes are adorned with precious stones and jewels and pearls, and who serve the communion in a gilded cup of solid gold. Um, and then lastly, the Roman church has had a long history of persecuting the saints. So am I saying that the church in Rome is the false religion? Um, I don't know. Could be. Maybe not. I could be wrong. But I tell you this. One of the things I know is that the, the Roman church, despite its history, uh, is not an organization or a religion or a church that's based solely on the scriptures. The Protestant Reformation was, began with this one concept called sola scriptura. Literally, we translate from the Latin, the Bible and the Bible alone. Luther's sin, Zwingli's sin, Calvin's sin, and any number of other reformers, many who paid their, with their lives because they took this position against the Roman church and were executed or killed as a consequence, simply said, the only final authority about life and faith is the Bible. That's why we live in this age where we find the Bible is increasingly being denigrated and talked about as being irrelevant. Even within our own movement of churches, whatever that is, we're, we're becoming less a spiritual movement and more like a bodily function. But it's interesting because one of the leaders stood and said, you know, you guys need to stop talking about Bible prophecy on Sunday mornings. I don't, I don't know if I'm doing this because I felt dared. <laughs> because the idea is younger people don't want to listen to this kind of stuff. To which I respond to something that, that Mark Driscoll once said about when somebody, interviewer asked him, how was he able to evangelize so many hard-hearted atheists in downtown Seattle? And his answer was, I discovered that nobody had ever told them that there is a rejection of biblical prophecy because it has not been really presented and explained in any kind of relevant or meaningful way. So when you want to ask me, why am I doing this? This is why I'm doing it. I'm doing it so that a whole generation that's coming up behind us will become aware that the Bible does speak about these things. It says very specific things. And it warns us that these are not only things that will delude and deceive mankind and lead them to an eternal judgment, but also it will give us an indication that we are living in the end times. So I go back to Peter's comment in 2 Peter chapter 3 where he says, seeing that everything around us will be dissolved, that it will all be burned with fire, what manner of men and women should we be? How should we be living our lives, in other words? What, what should be the, 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 the lens through which we view the future? Do we view it simply from the bookends of birth and death and say, you know, how far can I get in this race? 
Is it all about making sure that I have the right career choice, the right uh, spousal choice, that I have the right number of kids? I have 2.5 kids with a 1.3 dog and cat, and, and that we live in this community. We'd have, and all these things that I find so many people are being consumed with, and Jesus' words to us as we began this whole series of studies was, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens from which your hope comes. You know, that Jesus' promise was that he will appear a second time. And he'll appear in the clouds with great glory. And every eye will see him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Which does not mean as they do that, that they therefore are going to heaven. They just will find it impossible to deny. That's why these things matter. Do I think the Roman church is the, this woman here? I have no idea. I mean, it's kind of like that deer in the Gary Larson cartoon, you know, it's a bummer of a birthmark. Um, you know, a crosshair on his chest. I mean, it's like, I don't know, I, I, I look and go, wow, ooh, dude, that's, that's pretty scary. It can metastasize into something different. It will probably be something far different. But the whole point is, we can see these things. I mean, Hansel, Gretel, Look at the breadcrumbs. <laughs> Just follow them to where they're leading before the birds get them and you can see them no longer. Watch and be ready is where we started, right? Watch and be ready. Are you ready? Father, I pray that you would just uh, speak into our lives individually. Lord, you... you you said in your word that we should test the prophets to see if they're true. And I appreciate it when people write to me and ask me questions and say, well, when you said this and you said that, um, because you and I both know, Lord, that I am fallible. Even the infallible Pope is fallible because we are men, we are sinners, and we can get it wrong, as I think many of these men and women are. I think many of them are, people are being led astray and being deceived. And I pray, Father, that even as believers, that there's many here today who are feeling a, a breath of hope because we have our, at least ostensibly, the first non-global president that we've had in a long time. But Lord, the second coming doesn't come in on Air Force One. It comes when you appear in the sky and you return just as you left. And that you set up your kingdom. There's only one king who will ever reign over this earth that will bring true peace and true safety and security and justice for all. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us make that the marker that we're shooting towards, Lord. The goal that we want to attain, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.